Welcome to Club Crowd Radio. Please listen to this important disclaimer in its entirety. All participants of this Thug Crowd Radio episode are characters. None of the stories told during these episodes are based on facts, truth, or reality. All works of fiction displayed during this episode that resemble real-life situations are coincidental and are not meant to serve as guides or tutorials to commit any crimes in any country. Please consult an attorney for local laws and regulations. And as always, trust your inner criminal. And get your head knocking. Sorry, I'm like, I'm like <laughs> one computer set up right now, so I'm really uh, just figuring it out. Hello, you guys can hear me, huh? Yeah. Cool. Yep. Awesome. Play the chat here. Kaboom. Um, all right. <laughs> hey, what's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Um, so, yeah, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Hood uh, Crowd. This is episode, what, six of season two? Yes. And it's been quite a quite a weekend for all of us here. Yes. <laughs> so uh I guess uh what's up? What has everybody been up to this past weekend? Um trying to slowly write a blog post. I think I've deleted more words than I've written so far. <laughs> but that's uh that's how it goes. You know what? I've been trying to do the same thing and it's hard. It's because like it trying to make everything look nice. I think I just end up spending a lot of time trying to like make the actual layout look really nice too and then it just becomes a giant project yeah yeah it's i feel like every single part of it is me trying to put off something else and like i'll try to put off writing the actual thing by like doing some styling and some design stuff around some other stuff and then i try to go back to the thing and uh, it's all it's always something that i'm doing to put off another thing <laughs> It's a vicious like yeah. The whole blog post is about a project that you started because you were supposed to clean your room. Yeah, so, like, exactly. Giant project. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> it's a classic uh, cycle. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I've also been working on a blog post too. I'm working on a bunch of different stuff. Um, just trying to be more open source and cool, but it's it's hard sometimes. <laughs> I am building a uh, VDI lab. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I just got some parts together. Nice. How are you you doing that? So I'm going to be using Horizon V7. And uh, I'm looking at an HP fan client right now. So I'm still pretty much I fucked up my MacBook. (laughs) And so I have to... uh, either get a new desktop or do something cool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never really played around as much as that stuff as you have. And it's pretty interesting stuff though. 
just be able to yeah it. really cool stuff and it would be nice to be able to like reimage your boss like on the fly right yeah for sure that is the dream keep things nice and clean <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that what chromebooks are for it's one time use laptops burn your laptops for your burn your laptops um <clears throat> so hello i'm sorry just one microphone here um so yeah uh let's get right into it i mean so tonight where we have um Hacknar or Ryan or ATX Ladybird Lake. Um, we're on here to um, talk with us about BLECTF and hardware and all sorts of other cool stuff. And he's also here with us uh, for the news. So, hello, hey. Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, this is my my first podcast, I guess, in a long time. Oh, awesome. And so, also, we were going to say, too, we were talking about it earlier, we were going to... Uh, Put a malicious iframe in our show notes and have everybody join the Zoom. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking about just like how many people would end up joining it and then how many new vulnerabilities would probably be discovered or unloaded finally um, <laughs> and joining our, our chats here. Oh boy. But yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> we want to get right into it. Um, that's the first thing on our, on our news. Um, Shout out to whoever just posted that. Shell, you posted that in the chat. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Let's talk about the Zoom Zero Day that was dropped. Uh, was it last night? Yeah, it was uh, very, very recently. Apparently, they you know they said, okay, well, we gave them all the notice and whatnot, and they just didn't fix it. So, you know, mm -hmm. here you go. So, yeah. So, this is an interesting thing. So, he, he, yeah, basically, we had been playing around with this feature, which this is something that I was also looking at for a while, too. And I... I ended up just like giving up on it because it was just a bunch of JavaScript. And I was like, I don't care. But um, basically, they discovered on the Apple, um, or the, the MacBook version of the uh, Zoom client, um, basically had a, what is it, a web server running um, at all times, listening for any events from the browser that would open up a Zoom meeting. And it would do this even if you didn't have Zoom installed anymore. Um, and it would just want to continually join you to meetings. And so, yeah, a, um, a hidden uh, web server with a bunch of undocumented API calls. I'd say that's a backdoor. That's a <laughs> yeah, what can go wrong? <laughs> right, exactly. And Especially so if it persists after uninstallation. <laughs> that, that's the, honestly, that's the scariest part, is that it's just there waiting for you to just happily, you know, happily waiting there for you to install Zoom again. And what sucks is that it was it was created to get around certain security policies for Apple that were specifically designed so that wouldn't happen. And they uh, <laughs> they just made it so that you could just have, uh, yeah, that's just insane to me. And it sucks for everybody who has one. And just is the only real mitigation is to either uninstall Zoom or what is it? Turn off your camera, but that doesn't stop somebody from joining you to a meeting, which is already weird. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Like, imagine just like I mean, just sitting on you know, just going on your computer. You go on some place and some ad just like drops you to some scary like Zoom with some like red room like deep web shit. I could imagine that. <laughs> or it's, just spam. Honestly, it would just be used for spam. It'd be like the new pop up ad. 
It's the plot of Unfriended Four. <laughs> right? Oh my oh, god. <laughs> It's Cisco WebEx rooms. When you have a scheduled meeting, uh, you, there's actually this thing uh, where you can just like walk into the room and you can hold up your phone like right next to the uh, the room kit appliance and it'll just automatically connect to your meeting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many there's so many different avenues for for really weird shit from this, and I'm sure that 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 web server has some weird stuff going on as well beyond just being able to open up a meeting. You know, so I definitely encourage everybody here to look at that because it's it sucks. It sucks that that's a thing that has to happen that people, you know, think is something that a consumer would want. Um, and all of that just to get around the what the confirmation that you want to open up the the meeting. Like it's the laziest thing. <laughs> they had a, an emergency patch for it today, though, um, to bring up the four four four, which apparently fixes it in uh, mm-hmm. Mac Engine as well, too. Yeah, no, I saw the patch as well. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, definitely download that if you have Zoom on Mac and use it. I mean, a lot of people have to use it for work. It's like, you know, it's already going to be installed in your company laptop. So definitely um, update that yeah. if you have it. Yeah, it's also one of those things that, like you take for granted. Like, uh, it's like, oh, yeah, if I inst- uninstall something, it's gone. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like, I feel like a lot of people just end up putting a lot of trust into applications, you know, because they're so ubiquitous. But this is, this kind of stuff happens all over the place. There's there's stuff like this on our computers <laughs> and stuff that's, that's enterprise oh, yeah. apps that are, that are, um, have this exact kind of functionality. It's functionality of malware and it's also whitelisted on your uh, group policy. So, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Um, so yeah, the next uh, story that we have in here is about the uh, canonical GitHub account that was hacked. Um, so this is interesting here. Uh, so right off the bat, I love that I, I was reading the article because I had read another one, and this is the one that um, we had shared into the chat, and it just has plasmas just like quoted in the article, which is really funny. Talking to bad packers report, um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, the canonical uh, GitHub was taken over. Can got hacked. Um, somebody just made a bunch of stupid repos. Um, and yeah, it seems like, so it, it says here that the bad package report had reported that people were scanning for Git config files. And while that always happens, I don't, I feel like this is a bit more targeted. I don't know. Like I, I would, you would expect somebody who, who runs an important repo for an important company like Canonical who does downstream stuff for Ubuntu to have like 2FA or something. I'm not sure how the breach actually happened or the compromise actually happened, but it's an interesting, uh, interesting thing. Yeah, I imagine it was probably some some keys were found somewhere, and I was like, "Oh, well, there's your there's your key." Yeah, push all the things. So luckily, though, this didn't affect the the actual downstream anything downstream from Ubuntu. I don't know what else is in this repo um, or in the yeah what else um, that account actually controls but um this is different though because remember there is a couple of other ones like uh when gen 2 was hijacked um and someone tried to backdoor it and same with the it did yeah that happened to linux mint too and um there was a new bunch package and they went to store which is a bit different but for some of the the smaller distros that have like actual source code that is maintained like on github and it's tied to like build pipelines um that's uh, it gets pretty gnarly when when you make a push and then 
you know, approve a PR or whatever. And it just automatically starts this new build trigger that just pushes everything downstream. It's like, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous because like automated pipelines are sick, but then when something ever goes wrong, it's yeah. It's just, yeah. It's, also, it's like a weird thing where there's like, like, can we do anything? Like, no, I guess not. Like, okay. Just like throw a bunch of shit on there and call it a day. <laughs> yeah. It'd be really cool if there was a feature on uh, kind of like corporate GitHubs that would notify you or they could enable it that would show you that they have to pay enabled on account. Uh, yeah. A little bit more secure about it as well, too. Uh, I know that you can see that kind of thing like in a GitHub organization if you're a part of the organization. You can see who has 2FA and who doesn't. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting for transparency to say. But it also make people huge targets too if they yeah. like really. <laughs> like, oh, they don't have 2FA? Well, <laughs> under cred stuff, GitHub. Like, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. yeah. And there's also in the show notes, we have the archived page as well. The repos were cleaned up, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it's one of those weird things where it's like, there's so much you could probably do, but I mean, you know, another one of those things where someone's just like, let's just, just like shit it up. Like, <laughs> why do anything interesting, any, any trade craft? Nah, just spam it all. <laughs> why is it always these people who are so uncreative that manage to find these sick vulnerabilities? God only knows. Like, like this must be like some like next level blue team god like giving us grace. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the next story here um, is is timely in the wake of the suppression of Dollar VPN Club. Um, the <laughs> the next story we have is about the top VPN. Is an article report that came out um, auditing and trying to trace back. Um, who VPNs are owned by. And so this has been a topic of discussion and research for a lot of people because as you sort of follow up the, the labyrinthine like uh, uh, organization charts of who owns and actually operates a lot of these major VPN services, um, people have been finding that they're owned by some just shady people. And um, this, <laughs> this one here um, ties a lot of the top VPN services uh, to just a bunch of Chinese firms. And... Yeah, it's just interesting to see. There's there are so many different VPNs that are advertised and marketed to people. So many VPN solutions that just you know they have very 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 cheap prices, and people think that that's a good thing. And they just yeah. We, actually, last night didn't we were watching um, we were watching TV and there was a uh, a commercial that was like on a late night channel for like it was like a more like an older crowd. And there's like an older woman on this thing um, advertising NordVPN and saying that it would keep the hackers out and, and things like that. And it was just like said, like, in the, you know, when you <laughs> trust her in the voice. Not and just, just for anymore. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, th there's, a, there's aggressive marketing for all this stuff. And it's, I mean, some of it is tied back to like just shady people that, that really probably wouldn't care if they had this, you know, if they lost a bunch of money and ended up just selling a bunch of data, there's not really yeah. any regulation on that. And a lot of the stuff is international. It's difficult to trace, you know, money and people. Yeah. It's just uh, it's a huge mess. I always thought it'd be really cool to uh, provide VPN or proxy services 
that open sourced all the logs. <laughs> they could just have a stream of it for anyone to view, uh, which would be kind of cool for uh, training uh, blue teamers or security professionals as well too, to give you like a, a source for all these. Um, anyway, <laughs> kind of like one of my crazy ideas. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely find a couple of those on Shodan already. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, leaking those logs there. Um, but yeah, no, that's yeah, it, it's it's hard because people want VPN, people want privacy, but when you when you broker privacy through private organizations, it's just never going to be as as efficient as you want it to be. You might think it is. You might think that you have the little you know, I can has IP and it says that you're in uh, France or, you know, Indonesia or something. But that means that somebody is, is, is routing your data for you. And that's never. never yeah. I mean, then there's also like inside where they're like, oh, yeah, no, hey, maybe, you know, someone can can touch your uh, your computer from you know, China, for example. Like, yeah. Like, eh, it's just never good. Nope. Yeah, so um, definitely everybody be careful and consistently look out for this kind of misinformation and report it and call it out because there's a lot of there's a lot of this stuff and it's going to continue as people want more of these services and start to rely on them, even build businesses around them. And so, um, yeah, definitely keep an eye out. Shout out to Dollar VPN Club, rest in peace. <laughs> yeah, it's only after they they were the first to fall. They were the the guardians uh, on the gate. I think that there was no attribution to them, so I don't know. Maybe they they, they had a little exit scam. Who knows? But yeah. Also, it's worth noting that there's a lot of really good um, like solutions for setting up your own no log mm-hmm. VPN. Um, just solutions that you can just put on your favorite uh, on VPS and and go. We should definitely do a little segment about that at some point. We can just do a little video or something. We might stream to some site and uh, <laughs> try to maybe just walk people through setting up um, something like, you know, OpenVPN. You know, very, very easy to do. Just get like a $5 box or less if you have enough uh, gift cards in Amazon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can have a VPN for pretty cheap. Or if you're a student or have a student email. <laughs> Yes, or if you're very good at creating phishing pages, no. <laughs> as we were seeing as at last month's or last week's Safari with all the uh, the uh, .edu phishing pages, that was the, the reference to that. Um, yeah, please do not fish college students. They have enough. They have enough against them right now. Um, you, can, you can find your, you can uh, inherit a lot of good debt that way, though. If you're looking, yeah. At debt. yeah anyone wants to fish my Navient account, feel free. <laughs> um. So the next uh, next story we have in here um, is this mobile payment app from 7-Eleven that was rolled out and just hit really hard. It, was, it seems like a credential stuffing attack, but whoever whoever did this took about five hundred thousand dollars worth of like stuff through this app. Um, Jesus, and yeah. Like, apparently, there was like really no mitigations for verification, or there's no like verification procedures for. Um, the users of the account. So they were just basically just stuffing stuff and, and resetting and just grabbing cash out of this. Cause it's uh, tied to bank stuff. And um, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't sure if anybody had actually seen this app or had played with it. Um, I didn't, but I think it was dusty fresh that sent me this article and it's um, pretty interesting. 
Yeah, it's funny. It's 7-Eleven in Japan. That's huge in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, well, I mean, this thing is, uh, Japan's really big on like phones and paying with phones and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there are a shitload of these apps out there. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. uh, attackers would probably be looking into. Absolutely. And just, yeah, <laughs> it's just a huge mess. But uh, I wasn't sure if anybody else had played with it or seen this before. Anyone in the chat, but definitely sucks. Um, yeah, the next one here. So I, this one, someone had put it out there and I kind of wanted to just discuss it because it's, it's interesting. Um, this Microsoft issues a warning. It's like a very clickbaity title. Um, but if you kind of click through and look at the sources that they have, it gives you a bit more information. Um, but basically, there is a... Well, let me grab the other right up here. Um, basically, Microsoft had found a bug um, in how the uh, remote access um, manager um, handles Windows connections to VPNs. And it basically like messes up your VPN configuration and just won't let you connect through a VPN. Um, I don't know if anybody here is way better at Windows Enterprise Admin <laughs> than me. But I, I, you know, I'm sure everybody here is. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing though that would just shut off, I guess, VPN access. Um, so if you are using a VPN, I don't I don't know if it's if it's exactly apparent that it fails. But if anybody has any more info, I'd love to know. Yeah, it's always interesting. Uh, kind of like you see an organization, especially like Microsoft, be like, hey, you know, by the way, like uh, big problem. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people rely on a VPN to just even be able to work at all. So yeah. it would suck if, yeah, I couldn't imagine. Also, this page kind of blows. This Windows latest. Wow. It was like, I was looking at it on my phone and it wasn't this bad. It just slowed <laughs> down really bad. So one second. <laughs> the ad yeah, the ad, yeah. I got, I got zoomed over here. Um, one second. Just making sure. So, I know, interesting how the stream is under Fortnite category and not the science and tech section. Yeah, everything's a huge joke to us, and we apologize. Um, <laughs> wait, this isn't Fortnite? <laughs> Victory Royale. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, so this next one here is pretty cool. I wish um, one is buses in this chat right now. Also, I like the the last paragraph of this article. It says, in the meantime, Microsoft is stepping up its attempts to push Windows 7 users to Windows 10. <laughs> cool. <Yeah. laughs> huh. Interesting. Forbes tech reporting has really uh, gone down the drain lately. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of sites that, that it's it's hard to navigate, and some of them have little pieces of info, and it just yeah, it's there's a lot of it. But I, I just included that because it was interesting about the just anybody who uses a corporate VPN. It's just a strange thing that have to happen. At least they're not uh, at Bloomberg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the next story is my my mute got completely messed up. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was like, is everyone okay? This uh, this next story is actually really cool. Um, I don't know if you saw this, uh, Ryan. Um, I was trying to find more info about it, but it basically says that these people, 
in India had used a Bluetooth-enabled tablet to steal cars from a dealership. And so there was apparently some dealership that had bought a like a, a tablet that used something. I don't know what it would actually use um, to access vehicles and turn them on with this tablet. Do you know anything more about something like that? No, this is the first I've heard of it. I wonder, uh, do you know anything more details about it or no? No, so this is all that I really found. And, and I found other copies of this article in other sites. Um, but this has been reported that that people had just taken a tablet that is used to connect to, to cars and they just use it to open it up. I, I don't know if this is like if they had some sort of, if it's a tablet that already has, they already have some like vendor hardware that for the dealership that goes into the cars. It seems like a lot of effort in engineering to have to just not unlock a car with a key. Yeah, it's probably a dealership that had like, you know, like for some brand that had some Bluetooth app to unlock the store and someone stole the tablet that was owned by the the car company. But I have no idea. I'm just guessing here. Yeah. Okay. So no, the Raz in the chat says um, Uconnect. So it says dealers in the States use Uconnect for dealerships. So they don't have to deal with a bunch of keys. Um, so yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I didn't know about that. Um aspect of it that's pretty cool that there's a thing like that and you can just i guess register cars and go and hit it the whole skeleton key what could go wrong right <laughs> some of uh, the higher higher end dealerships they have these like systems that are hooked up to saves that actually uh store the keys oh yeah yeah like it's like some kind of like computerized system that uh stores them in certain little co- cubbies within a grander safe oh yeah that's thing. Like a lot of uh, reminds me of like the things that like large apartment buildings do, where they just have everyone has their own thing or whatever. It's, it makes it nice and easy. You can access the one thing without having to get all the rest. Everything's kind of isolated in that way. Yeah, and you have a log of who accessed what. Or... Sick. Um, so this next one here is from the Associated Press, and it's. It's a weird one. So um, there, a while ago, there had been um, allegations that Georgia's voting system had been hacked um, because there was evidence of hacking and the fact that there was a, um, what's it called? There was just a bunch of vulnerabilities in the server itself that were known and weren't patched. And then for some reason, the people who were investigating it destroyed the server image that they took, the forensic image that they took and wiped all the data off of the servers themselves. And it just was just completely just nuked out of the, out of orbit here. And now they're trying to get the FBI to give them the, the server image so they can do more forensic stuff. And yeah, there's just a big controversy about whether or not they're allowed to, to give it to them. Because apparently the way that the, the case went when they were trying to figure out what happened, um, the judge didn't say anything about having to keep the image. I don't. I can't imagine any sort of person in a legal like a uh, legal setting trying to, to do the nuances of uh, DFIR in a uh, in a court case with a bunch of people who have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> so I don't know how this would have happened, but yeah, I guess it was destroyed. All this data that would. Yeah. It smells Showing like government the- all the way down. 
<laughs> yeah. And so this was like for like a highly, highly contested election to begin with. So it's, it just seems like so sketchy, but regardless of whether or not you're doing any sort of foul play or you're trying to cover someone's ass for not patching something, this is all very useful evidence regardless for people who are trying to target elections. This is like a very real thing. And someone's like, is just selfishly like, Oh yeah, no, I don't want them to know about what I did. You know, let alone the fact that like literally there's probably crucial evidence to like something that would potentially happen in the future or is happening currently, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's always weird, like to destroy evidence, like in any situation, uh, mm-hmm. this is like probably just not something you want to do, you know, like, uh, <laughs> look. they're like, Oh no, we needed to free up space for Fortnite. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. No man. Roblox, my Roblox folder was getting huge. My meme folder, my Chad folder. It was just, yeah. Uh, so I, I, no. yeah, I have no idea, but like I said, it, it smells like government. <laughs> like, yeah, definitely. It just seems like a mix of like either a little bit of malice mixed with a bunch of bureaucracy and people have no idea like what they're actually doing. Um, which sucks because I mean, even like when people were talking about like, like, um, like not to really, you know, do, do a necro bump here um, of like um, Hillary Clinton's like server. And people saying, like, I want the server. Like, look in the server. Like, look to see if someone hacked it. Like, but people, like, think that, I don't know, people have very, very strange ideas of, like, what that actually could be uh, or what that could mean. And so, um, you mean the hacker's not hiding inside of my rack? Yeah, it's like Zoolander or something like that. <laughs> are in the computer. It's just like, I don't know. I just, I wish that, like, there would be some people that could just go in and be like, all right, let's, let's, do you know what we need just do the needful but yeah it's definitely uh frustrating to watch like bumbling stuff like this especially for something as important as like elections and you know like governmental processes so yeah it just always reminds me like uh people like on the conspiracy theory like tip it's like uh no like the government's not well organized enough for some of these cover-ups <laughs> like real <laughs> they're not they don't get uh some of the basic things right yeah no i mean they, so they were spending a little too much time hiding messages in the bricks of somebody's apartment to uh yeah this right they're <laughs> too busy um like putting what is it that <sighs> never mind i'm gonna go way too far down the rabbit hole of, of like weird <laughs> but yeah no it definitely um rings true here um so yeah this next story that we have in here with this group called Silence that has been hitting some banks in um, it looks to be like South South Asia, uh, Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, and Kyrgyzstan. Um, this group basically just seems to be like hitting a bunch of uh, what's called ATMs and other bank stuff and just cashing a bunch of money out. There's actually a video of them of <laughs> just a bunch of people is at an ATM. So this whole squad that just is like they have all their pictures and everything. So they're, yeah, they're just like pulling a bunch of money out of all these ATMs. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like silly. I don't know. It sucks. It's just like these people are just doing this like very petty crime, but they're just doing it in a you know slightly uh, I guess more technological way. And yeah, they're just out and about doing this shit. I love yeah. how this also though, the ZDNet article has like two other CNCIPs they just like dropped in there. Just casually, whatever. 
Oh, I bet you they're still up, to be honest. <laughs> That's, that is super funny. But yeah, it's like, I mean, ATMs have been having a, a rough a rough couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. There was, uh, writing about them, there was a really cool paper that was published um, on... Uh, like the security measures that attackers take it's called deviant it's called like deviant security mm-hmm. uh, that followed a few people who were, um, you know, that kind of started the whole ATM making malware stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good read. Good read. It's about the like security measures that attackers take. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but like ever since then, like, I think they kind of were the ones that started it and ever, you know, it's just gone on since then and ATMs have become a pretty, uh, pretty popular target it seems mm-hmm. there's a story later on down here that's um similar we can discuss you know actually yeah i'll wait till we'll discuss it after but yeah no this is um <laughs> it's the sort of thing that just these big ass groups are doing similar similar things but it's it's more globally distributed and they're trying to do a bit more um i guess hiding but i don't know it's, yeah also silence is a, is a pretty pretty top tier uh hacker name for a hacker group yeah it's a lot better than you know uh a lot of the other dumb dumb shit you see out there (laughs) as good as roblox gang but (laughs) nothing will ever be as good as roblox gang um so yeah this next uh i was actually excited to talk about this this uh logitech usb dongles uh it's pretty cool so actually we have the if you look at the um what is it? In the Goodreads section, um, Logitech, Logitech Vones disclosed is a repo that contains a bunch more information about this. Uh, basically, somebody had disclosed a bunch of vulnerabilities about Logitech USB dongles with their unifying um, radio technology that is in a bunch of different um, Logitech devices. And so this person had one of the first CV that they had was the ability to inject keystrokes into... Um, is this all Mark Nolan's work? Or? As Marcus Mengs um, is the name. Yeah, actually, do you have the show notes here? Um, I can post them in the, in the Zoom chat here. Um, one second. Dang it, I lost it. <laughs> Someone else will have to do it. because I, I, <laughs> I was looking up. I got you. Um, Cool, cool. Um, so yeah, no. So there's somebody was able to they're able to inject um, keystrokes into a dongle, um, as well as sniff uh, both aspects of the traffic. Um, and if they had physical access to the dongle, steal the encryption key and dump other stuff out of it. Um, that was just a, a ton of stuff that they <laughs> they've been able to do with these little dongles. And yeah, it's a pretty interesting attack. Yeah, it sounds like this dude pretty well, uh, you know, went through and destroyed these things pretty well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think um, I maybe I have the name wrong. I thought it was uh, Mark Nolan. Uh, he was working for uh, Basilisk at the time or something like that. He had done like a lot of work on uh, unifying dongles and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. the library released... Um, maybe like three years ago, um, which helped you like reflash your own unifying dongles in order to, to do the shock burst uh, sniffing on the uh, and the injection attacks as well too. Um, really cool stuff, and I think they were using like um, it's like an old uh, 
quadcopter kits um, USB dongle. I think it was like it's called a crazy fly. And you mm-hmm. can use that dongle because it used the same Nordic semiconductor chipset that was using the shock burst. Um, mm-hmm. Had like a, an extended range antenna on it. Um, so I have a couple of them at home. They're pretty cool. Um, but you can flash those with the firmware too, and they make really cool uh, sniffing devices. You can walk around your office and um, see everyone that didn't have a patched unifying dongle. <laughs> That's really neat. <laughs> that is really cool. Um, yeah, no, I definitely want to look more at this. This this came out like as I was in the middle of doing a bunch of stuff today, but I'm going to read a bunch more about um, this because I didn't really know too much about this protocol, mm-hmm. um, but it's definitely pretty cool. Um, so yeah, the next story that we have on here um, is somebody who basically is trying to go to uh, Parliament for um, in, in England to try to get a bunch of standards, basically, um, and changes made to the health healthcare system, cybersecurity infrastructure. And so this kind of stuff, though, I mean, I wish I saw more calls like this elsewhere, like calling off the government saying like, yo, um, we should have like some very basic, basic stuff as a part of our sort of compliance and regulation um, regarding healthcare technology. Um, There's a bunch of like little like good best practices, like, you know, having network segmentation Ooh, big oh, um, stuff like that like there's like you know the things that they that they are suggesting i mean it's there's this is this kind of stuff has been happening like all over the place where there's just there's like hospitals and ransomware and things like that and as much as that sucks and we're like oh like you know you should blame the the ransomware authors i mean realistically you shouldn't have like medical equipment on the internet and people consistently find stuff like that and it's just like a shame because like what do you do like it's it's very difficult to even get in touch with the hospital you know to and get on the phone with somebody who knows what you're talking about and the fact that there's you know it could be you know you might have found it on shodan or or through whatever passive scanning you might have done and then there's just that one jerk that one jerk to just start fucking around and it uh really makes it could end other people's lives it's just that's really what it comes down to and so yeah i'm glad that there's people that are trying to do this and i encourage more people to if they are you know in this sort of sector to really push for this kind of stuff because it's very needed yeah everything's so monolithic like it's just so old and like i feel like a lot of the stuff right you have all these systems and no one who actually works at the hospital like has like the ability to like maintain or do anything yeah. with them. So mm-hmm. it's makes it even more important to have these like very uh, sane practices in place. Yeah. I mean, like it sucks too, because a lot of the stuff, you know, has been demonstrated to sometimes, you know, MRI machines might rely on windows 2000 and that sucks. But at the very least, like have network segmentation, have yeah. like protocols for sending data back and forth securely. There's just so many things that you can do, but it's there's not enough people that are, are you know, um, experienced enough to be able to show how to implement that. It's not it's not like the the you know it's not like something that's beyond anybody's capabilities. Um, it's just a matter of getting the right people in the right places. So yeah, yeah. definitely be interested. In, seeing more people uh, pursue those kinds of things and try to, you know, work with agencies like that. Cause yeah. <laughs> uh, let's hope they, uh, it's easier to work through in, in England. <laughs> it's here. 
Yeah. Oh, so um, this next story we have in here is about British Airways that's facing the largest fine um, for data breach stuff. And it's just basically a GDPR fine, the thing that everybody wants to avoid. Um, but yeah, British Airways has to pay um, $230 million for a data breach, which is wild. That's a uh, big boy. <laughs> but good, though, because that's, I mean, I, there's just so, like, last week we talked about the Equifax um, executive that was um, going to jail for the first selling stock before the Equifax breach was disclosed. Yeah. And, like, that's, like, I don't know. It's, it's, even though they're only getting, like, a few months, it's still, like, good, you know? Like, that there's somebody is at least paying for this. Because just so many companies just get screwed over the stupidest thing and then they don't have to pay anything. There's nothing wrong. And everyone's just, everyone's like, you know, Japanese 7-Eleven card gets breached after that. <laughs> like, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's so, good that mm, people like companies are being held responsible for like losing your data mm-hmm. because yeah i mean oftentimes if you look at the stock prices of these companies in america like that lose customer data like it doesn't like it takes a hit for like five days and then just goes right back to normal like and without any sort of like fiscal uh you know penalty like, mm-hmm not having to pay money like they're not going to be like super interested because in the end if it doesn't lose the money like why should they invest uh you know money in securing the stuff so good but yeah it's uh it's be interesting to see uh more of these coming like going forward because uh at, since like GDPR has come in, we haven't seen too too much of this, have we? No, I mean, a lot of places just kind of skirt around the responsibility. I mean, I feel like a lot of this stuff might be in the works too, because um, this is this was a year in the making for British Airways, so there might be for some of the breaches that have happened recently something that happened. But it's just it's hard because there's, I mean, American companies have to follow GDPR stuff um, and could still face fines there, but there are. For every breach that happens, there is somebody who lives in the EU that was affected by it, you know? And so it's interesting. I want to see how it rolls out eventually over time. But it's, it's I don't know if it's going to be as effective at, as a mitigation. Because companies can usually just afford to pay that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. They go whatever. Do GDPR fines in any way go be contributed back to helping the people who are impacted by the breach? I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I don't like know who makes money off of GDPR. <laughs> like yeah. finding them two hundred fifty million is great, but is this just going to the, the rich people, or is it going to actually help people get new uh, passports or payment cards or whatever it is that got breached? You know, that's a really good question that I've never thought about. Yeah, who uh, who watches the the Watchmen? I guess I don't know. Goes to the yeah. gov. Yeah, to do what? Like. Missiles. <laughs> I I've filed uh, PETA complaints before, and I've said to the privacy commissioner, like, are, are they going to pay to have this person's or information repaired or fixed or whatever? Like, what are you going to get back? And it's always just some bullshit credit monitoring. Like, mm-hmm. what's that going to? 
Yeah, all yeah. this is just another product that they're just eventually going to just store you store your data for on another unsecured Mongo database and uh, get that ransomed. So, yeah, and the what funny thing is, they try to charge you for it. No, well, and also in order after to get a year, you got to pay for it. To get those services, you have to sign away your right to legal action all the time. Yeah. Yep. That was that's like crazy shit. It's just like being able to just skirt around. I mean, that's honestly what is the reason why this kind of stuff is even in in place in the first place. This kind of regulation because it's way too easy to skirt around everything and just offer really bullshit solutions for stuff that is very serious and just continue to just like nickel and dime people and then just string them along and waste their time and expose them to even more threats. It's just insane. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a... It's a different world that we're living in than, uh, than it was a few years ago. Yeah. Sure is. Um, so yeah, this one was cool. This was this report here about um, Monero um, security flaws. It comes from, what is this website? <laughs> I was like reading an article and I look at the header image, which didn't load last time I looked at it. And it's just like a Photoshop picture of someone's face. I don't know who this is. Um, but yeah, um, Monero basically got a bunch of stuff that came out on Hacker One. Um, some pretty interesting like DOS stuff. Um, I'm really I don't know anything about crypto cryptocurrency. Um, but this I wish DNZ was here to just explain the entire process to us. But <laughs> what was that this there was um like memory leaks and a bunch of other bugs in here that could have like brought down um some crypto exchanges as well as like forge some transactions. So it's pretty cool. I'm kind of a little bit more about it to understand exactly the implications besides the DOS, the, the DOS at least though, by, by trying to query a large old chunks of the blockchain and, you know, uh, doing some resource exhaustion on the boxes that are serving the actual Monero blockchain. And yeah, I don't you know. It's, it's pretty cool, but, Big bounties. Although you get paid in Monero, which if you find a really bad bug in Monero and the, the value goes down. You know, <laughs> yeah, it is. It is nice to see, uh, you know, comp- I say companies because, you know, they are companies, but uh, to see stuff like this on, you know, on HackerOne and on BugCrowd. And actually like, you know, it's kind of like the put your money where your mouth is a security, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. running to, invest like sell yourself as a you know a privacy focused security focused product it's nice to see that you know they're actually um you know paying people to find things like this mm-hmm. no i mean it's definitely good i've i that was the thing i was going to talk about i meant to say i got some of my first actual reports validated on hacker one and and uh um, bug crowd, and I'm glad to see a lot of people that have been doing the same and really trying to hit hit a lot of bug bounties harder because this stuff is you definitely find some interesting things that are helpful. So like yeah, for sure. And like I said, it's a lot like once again, like it's good program. It's a it's good enough cause. So mm-hmm. uh, it's nice to see. Yeah, nice yeah. to see a security. Uh, like a healthy security like ecosystem. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I've always been such a jerk about it because I just always <laughs> would feel like, oh, I can't report this. I'm just going to laugh about it and move on. But it's uh, definitely useful to just try to, to summarize things in a report. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely had, uh, last month, I've had some really good uh, experiences reporting bugs and some really bad ones. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's fun. It's nice. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, the next story that we have on here is another ATM story. Um, this is for this, um, credit union. Um, it was Philadelphia federal credit union. Um, but they had a similar attack where, um, they think that cards could potentially have been cloned. Um, there's not really a lot of information on how this happened, but there was just a, this whole bank itself was targeted, which is interesting. Um, where it was directly the customers of the bank rather than what they were saying before, like they were targeting ATM and ATM infrastructure for um, other banks. This is targeting the customers of the bank. So I wonder what that could mean. Yeah. If, like, we were saying how uh, a lot of like ATMs and stuff have been targeted pretty heavily as of late. Mm. But it's interesting to see uh, targeting specific companies customers of a specific or like just customers of a specific bank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did it say like why, why they were targeted or any, anything or just that they were nothing about it. No one knows how the pin codes are obtained. There's a bunch of stuff. So I, I, I don't know. I'm interested in following the story to see, cause it'd be, it'd be weird to see <laughs> some sort of either like person inside or very, very crazy. Um, it's called, yeah, storage of, of customer data. <laughs> yeah, some sort of customer data leak somewhere. But it's interesting that uh, that they like. Oh yeah, like it happened, but we don't know how, where, why. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, doesn't encourage a lot of trust. But uh, we'll see if there's is more uh, that comes out of this. Mm -hmm. Um, so the action page or action section, which is, we, have, we don't really have that often. Um, there's a petition going around now. Um, pretty cool. Um, there's some people that are basically trying to petition. I'll, I'll share this in the chat. If anybody would want to sign up some change.org, they're trying to grab a bunch of people to, um, have a consistently defined and enforced YouTube content policy. And so uh, there's been a lot of talk. Um, a lot of you may have seen um, people's channels getting banned from YouTube just because they post hacking content. As uh, our uh, last September, our YouTube channel was banned for the same thing um, with mis under mysterious circumstances, where they told me that I wasn't allowed to create another YouTube channel at all, which is strange because I, I have YouTube Premium. So, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, there's a lot of people that have had issues with hacking content, um, which has no, nothing that is at all malicious or ill intent. It's just people teaching people how to use like Nmap and shit, and they just get banned and they get their videos taken down. Um, so yeah, there's they're trying to do a petition um, where they say, "Yo, uh, we should have a actually defined." Um, content policy because YouTube doesn't actually have anything that is published saying that they should uh, like or what the actual terms of the um, you know what what they actually trying to enforce is 
So it just leaves it to you know people to just not really know what to do and not want to use the platform. And like while there are a ton of other different platforms, I mean, if people are already creating stuff like Live Overflow or anybody else um, who are creating like a lot of cool content, um, it just seems counterintuitive to your platform to just have some arbitrary thing that could potentially lead to you banning, you know, getting your YouTube stuff banned, and then you have to find a new host. It just yeah, seems like a waste. Yeah, well, especially because like people like Live Overflow, like it's literally their livelihood. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other a lot of other people who you know make a, you know a specific, like a large amount of their mm-hmm. you know of their uh, income based on you know content creation. And it's like a lot of the con- like the views come from people who are subscribed. They get notifications from the platform. Like a lot of people's like stuff is very heavily tied into that. Like, uh, you know the platform feeding them the mm-hmm. the stuff like from the algorithm. So it is, uh, it's scary, to, uh, you know, for like these people. And it's, uh, I, I feel like YouTube definitely doesn't take that into account uh, enough when they just uh, arbitrarily like keep people off the platform for stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And also like, it's worth noting that, you know, when it happens, there's no, uh, the appeals process is basically just them saying like blindly saying no again. Like, yeah, no, yeah, that's exactly what happened. They just, when I went to appeal it, they just didn't give me any other information about it. It's they're just like, well, we are going to just continue with our ban and that is it. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah. And also, I don't know if this is the way that they have some weird counter to make you try to sign it but it seems like a lot of people have been signing it right now. I don't know if this is live, but I could be getting tricked entirely by some stupid for loop. So don't mind me. <laughs> I'm just excited that people are, are signing it. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know how it's going to go, but I would encourage people to at least talk about this thing um, and, and try to get YouTube in some way. I mean, they're, they're the one of the, they're, an entity of one of the biggest companies in the world. So they probably really don't give a shit about anything that we have to say. Um, but there's no, uh, no point in not trying to at least get the word out. Um, and if not, um, starting something new and yeah, someone actually started a new site that was specifically for like hacking videos and almost instantly got popped. <laughs> someone defaced yeah. it. <laughs> yep. It happens. Definitely some, some, uh, you know, development mode C panel stuff, but it, <laughs> it definitely happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of community stuff that we can do to work together to get content out. Twitch is a cool platform. Shout out to Twitch for not banning us, um, even though we fuck around quite a lot. Um, so yeah, definitely important discussion to have, though, um, with trusting platforms and relying on a single platform for anything that you do. It's definitely good to be highly available and distributed. Yeah, bling, bling. Bling, bling. Um... But yeah, that's about it for the news today. So maybe we can go on a break for about 10 minutes or so. And when we come back, we can follow up with Brian here about DLECTF and other cool radio stuff. Cool. See you guys in 10 minutes. Hello. Yeah, well, oh, look at that. <laughs> Atmos. Is, we were just talking about you, Atmos. You're just uh, mashing up the chat over here. Yeah. Your local, friendly local hood Unicode dealer. 
I don't even, is that's like, is that a nickname? Whose nickname is that? That's very, yeah, it's wild shit. <laughs> um, cool stuff. Um, all right, yeah, so welcome back. We're here with uh, Ryan, a.k.a. Hacknar, uh, the creator of the BLECTF. How you doing? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me again. Um, I don't know, uh, where do you guys want to start? Um, I guess... We can start with uh, who you are. <laughs> who am I? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, um, I, I work at Alassia and I run a lot of the detection incident response teams and help manage the, um, the red teams here. Um, mm-hmm. But that's kind of like a, like a good kind of segue into uh, me and Bluetooth, I guess, because there is no segue at all. Uh, <laughs> so I think that's one of the reasons why I enjoy doing Bluetooth. I do it a lot of it in my spare time, but it has absolutely nothing to do with my nine to fives. Uh, this one that I currently work here or any of my previous gigs, which makes it really nice for um, just releasing stuff completely open source and being transparent mm-hmm. about it and helping the community. And a lot of organizations can't really hold me to any PII I talk about with it because it's so different from what I typically do. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely good. Yeah, to, to keep segregated because it's hard for people that, that do the work that they do and they find cool stuff, but they're just they they have to report it through all the proper channels and then you know NDAs and all sorts of other stuff that it it gets in the way of research. So yeah, it's it's fun to do stuff that's outside of your normal wheelhouse. Yeah, it's also you know like kind of a, a good shut off as well too, right? A lot of people do analog type hobbies and stuff like that. Um, but um, I'm not really an analog type of guy, so I <laughs> just pick a different technology um, that I can mess with and do security in. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also really cool too. I think um, it shows a lot that you don't um, you don't really have to be into hardware development or Bluetooth development in order to do a lot of this Bluetooth stuff. Um, so mm-hmm. I encourage a lot of people to start doing it for the first times, and you know that's kind of why I, I ended up creating the BLACTF. But um, you know, don't be scared of it. It's not too hard. Um, and I'll kind of go on a little bit about that later on. Yeah. So, um, I guess let's get into a little bit about you doing Bluetooth. So there, as you said, it's, it is scary for a lot of people because Bluetooth as a spec is, is really, uh, is really complicated. There's a lot of aspects of it. The stack has, there's so many different aspects of it. It's just, there's people, cause it's written for, for so many different reasons, you know, like so there's beyond just HID or or any sort of um, audio, there's tons of different other um, what's it called uh, things that you can use it for. That just it it's when you look at the different specs and the different you know diagrams, data sheets, everything, it just becomes overwhelming. And for a lot of people, it's it's not the same thing as like when you try to learn something like say anything with networking where it's built off of older stuff. It's a lot of things that people aren't normally exposed to. Mm-hmm. So it does take a lot, um, or it seems like it takes a, a huge amount of, of time and effort and learning to actually get into. Um, so how did you get in, in into learning it and how did you kind of approach that sort of um, challenge? Yeah. So I started um, getting into Bluetooth maybe like nine or 10 years ago. Um, the whole kind of ecosystem was a lot different then. there wasn't Bluetooth low energy or it was just a spec at the time. Uh, and everything was Bluetooth Classic. 
Uh, I think uh, it was right around DEF CON 17. Mike Osman and Dominic Spill were good friends of mine. We're giving, uh, they are now, uh, we kind of met through doing similar research. Um, but they were doing a talk on, you know, kind of breaking into doing passive Bluetooth monitoring with the software defined radio. Um, and I found it really cool. This was uh, maybe a year or two before they had created the Ubertooth. Um, and then shortly after I started getting into it, um, and then they released the Ubertooth project. Um, and I got into it really early um, and ended up writing a couple of scapey layers for it. So you could do um, interactions with the Ubertooth and then see all your data through uh, scapey and kind of live stream that. I did a DEF CON presentation about it uh, maybe like seven years ago. Um, but I ended up meeting them through that. Um, we've become really good friends ever since, and I've just kind of worked on Bluetooth in my spare time ever since. That's really cool. Yeah, so you were there, like sort of like at the at the beginning parts where people were starting to hack on Bluetooth a lot. And yeah, no, that's cool. There's like tools like that now. Like Ubertooth is a huge thing. Any of the other um, different Bluetooth boards, um, a lot of the 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 lower cost uh, modules are really cool too. There's like a lot of really low cost modules that, that it's easy to get started with playing with even the most basic sort of uh, functionality. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think too, that's um, like, I started doing, um, I was lucky enough to get accepted to the Circle CityCon workshops a couple of months ago. Um, and I gave a presentation there or, or a workshop there. It was like a nine hour workshop. But one of the things that, I find a lot of people getting into Bluetooth have issues with is understanding what all the different hardware does in it. Um, you know, people buy an Ubertooth or people buy like a UD100 dongle and they think that that's a sniffer and they don't really understand what each tool is for. Um, so I find it really useful to explain that to a lot of people as well too. And you don't need, you know, like a, an expensive SDR or even like a, you know, a $60 Ubertooth in order to get into a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Pretty much, you know, start hacking on Bluetooth with just the Bluetooth module in your laptop and a Linux installation, right? Uh, you can even do it with your cell phones nowadays with a, yeah. like NRF Connect and stuff like that. It allows you to do reads and writes to GAT services. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's become a lot more available to the general public. No, it's pretty cool. I mean, like even even being able to do like you can generally HCID bugging on like an Android and be able to see like the logs of like what the messages are being sent is pretty cool to see. Like even just in like regular like advertising mode to just you know see what other things are coming through. I and mean, there's apps to do it. Like it's, I feel like yeah, it definitely has gotten a lot easier to get into at the very least getting exposed to the different aspects of Bluetooth, um, which is pretty dope because there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think uh, yeah, go for it. No, no, no. I'm just <laughs> I forgot what I was gonna say. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> totally happens. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you were you were talking about earlier too, like um, it kind of being intimidating to get into because you know the protocols are a lot different, and you know it's a spread spectrum frequency hopping, you know, like. Um, protocol that goes over, you know, 80 different channels or 30 different channels. And it sounds very intimidating. Uh, it's not like things that you understand, like TCP or UDP and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but um, really, it is like I, <laughs> I, I explain, I do a lot of fire talks on Bluetooth low energy stuff and a lot of my small projects uh, here in Austin, at, like local hacker meetups. Uh, and I've found, you know, you get like five minutes to do a talk and you have to explain Bluetooth enough to an audience for them to understand uh, within one minute, so you can give your presentation for four minutes on what your actual, you know, your talk is about. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so over the years, I've kind of come up with a lot of just um, real simple comparisons or metaphors or things like that to explain to people what a specific protocol Bluetooth is. And so um, I found it really useful when I gave my um, workshop at Circle City. Um, I, you know, I had a disclaimer slide that said like, everything I'm about to tell you is really a lie and none of it's really true, but it will help you understand Bluetooth in a really fast time frame. Uh, mm-hmm. so a lot of comparisons of uh, Bluetooth low energy GAT servers and GAT interactions to basically just HTTP, right? Uh, yeah. One that's in, you know, like that goes to hacker conferences or hacker meetups and things like that. Um, they're very familiar with, um, you know, web application pen testing. And so um, mm-hmm. getting it back to that makes it really understandable to people within a, a quick time period, I think. Um, mm-hmm. None of it's really true. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of very similar though, right? Um, GAT and HTTP, one's just, it's just a client server architecture. Uh, in GAT, you can send, you know, reads, writes, notifications as your methods. And then in HTTP, you're doing GETs, posts, puts, et cetera. Uh, and then in HTTP, you have URLs and, you know, that you hit. But in, uh, you know, GAT services, you have characteristics that you hit. And that's kind of like the URL of, of a Bluetooth GAT server. So um, really weird, dirty comparisons, but it, it works for giving people a quick understanding. Yeah. No, I mean, that's the, that's the thing is that like for teaching this kind of stuff is giving people a good mental model to work from. And that's, that's why it's really cool to just be able to sort of have more hands-on stuff, like what you have done with, uh, you know, BLECTF, which I guess we can start talking about a bit now. Um, so yeah, I mean, so what, um, I guess we can start with what inspired you to start a CTF like BLC. <laughs> it's kind of a, a funny question. I have like a good lie for it. Um, but the truth of the story is um, I was just drunk at the bar at ShmooCon uh, maybe in early 2018. Um, and I was sitting there with my friend and when I was poking around at some open gap servers uh, in the room. Uh, yeah. And I was like, man, I wonder how many people at conferences actually poke at Bluetooth, right? And so I just whipped up a real quick um, Bluetooth monitoring gap server that would shine an LED on uh, an Android or on a, uh, an, Ar- an Arduino device that I had. Um, mm-hmm. If someone did a read or write to any of your characteristics, a light would go on. Uh, yeah. So it was just something that I would tote around with me at, at the conference to see if anyone was actually doing active scans and active poking in Bluetooth. Yeah. Uh, out, no one was. Um, it's also a hidden feature in Bluetooth CTF. Uh, <laughs> and I made it that way as well, too. So uh, the Bluetooth CTF, as soon as you do any reads or writes to it, a little blue LED will turn on. Uh, yeah. That because, um, you know, I, I created the project maybe a year ago in the spring of 2018. Uh, right before DEF CON, uh, you know, I, I had the GA release of it. And I just wanted to tote a bunch of them around at DEF CON uh, to see if anyone was mm-hmm. getting there as well, too. Uh, and like, I think it went off maybe once throughout the whole week at Black Hat and DEF CON. Uh, so there's not really as many um, kind of Bluetooth active exploitations going on that you, you really think are. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, I, I've always played around with those kind of things. And usually when I'm bored in line somewhere um, is the best time to start poking at people's characteristics and trying to change some names. Um, but yeah, no, it's, um, it's definitely, I feel like it's a, not as, as an explored space anymore i mean people used to do like sorts of really weird attacks before there was more um you know security mechanisms around pairing and stuff um just like blue snarfing and stuff like that like but um are there any sort of attacks like that that people are developing nowadays 
Um, you know, there are, um, but they're far and few between, right? Like, and they're typically device specific because a lot of the the GAT specific exploits that you see are for a specific device. I think one of the more wider spread ones was um, that was it an Android watch one that happened maybe like six months to a year ago or something like that. Um, but you don't see it too much. Like you see it specific to a device. Like Google just had a CVE released on their uh, little YubiKey Bluetooth dongles um, because you could actively snip the pairing process on it and then um, do the UTF on those as well too. Um, but um, yeah, not really. Nothing widespread, right? I think the largest widespread one recently was um, wasn't even released as a CVE, but uh, there was someone. I, I feel bad because I forget his name. He gave a a good talk at DEF CON last year on actually doing injection into uh, linked Bluetooth devices using the microbits, um, which is a really cool talk. Um, so I think, um, I can't remember his name, but I remember his projects. He's the sole author of, um, or the core contributor for BLE Jack and uh, Beetlejuice, um, both start with like BTLE. That's cool. Um, so what is BLECDF? We've been talking about the aspect of it, but what actually is it? It's a board, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'll get into it a little bit. Um, I'll, I'll continue on and then I'll transition to that. So uh, the real truth of the story, too, as to why I built it, like, yeah, I was drunk. Um, but over the years, I noticed that no one, there wasn't a lot of really great educational tools for um, learning to hack and tinker with Bluetooth low energy. And so that's kind of why I ended up sticking with the project is to create something like that. And so what it actually is, is a um, very cheap um, uh, microchip called an ESP32, um, which someone at a local hacker meetup here was talking about one day and I, I got interested in it and I started writing the CTF on that. Um, but in the end, like BLE CTF is simply just a series of exercises to teach people um, active Bluetooth low energy interactions on a GAT service from the ground up with no need to understand Bluetooth beforehand. And it's just really kind of open that way. So it's mostly just an educational tool. That's really cool. Um, but yeah, um, real cheap entry, like real cheap cost of entry as well too was something else I was really focusing on. You can get these ESP32s for like five bucks in, you know, like in bulk from China or you can pay $10 on Amazon Prime and get one. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, it just makes it really easy for people to get into. Um, like I said, you need zero Bluetooth experience to actually start the CTF from, you know, start to finish. And, you know, in order to interact with it, you don't need a new Bluetooth. Uh, you don't need a fancy SDR or anything like that. Um, you just need, uh, you know, I, I recommend everyone uses like a Linux box with some type of Bluetooth module. Um, and then you can just start, you know, from start to finish reading the documentation on my GitHub. Um, there's like a lot of hint files and things like that. Um, so the CTF part, I was kind of worried that it would scare people away. Some people are scared of CTFs, um, but it's it's very CTF oriented, but it's uh, it's mostly just a series of exercises. That's really awesome. So what kind of stuff goes into designing a challenge for something that is using Bluetooth? Yeah. Um, well, I had no idea when I started. Um, I'd always done Bluetooth stuff from the client side. And so um, uh, in order to create them now, I, I really wanted to get into writing the server side portion of it, which is the GAT servers. 
Um, and so with the ESP32, um, there's basically like uh, an API that you follow with their SDK, the Expressive SDK, in order to do a lot of the GET interactions. And so um, with uh, BLECTF version 1, which I released last year, uh, it was very monolithic in nature. So for me to spin up a flag, um, I would basically add another characteristic to a GAT server, which is kind of like a URL to an HTTP server, and then put some type of code functionality into there. And so uh, I would say, hey, if you do a, a read to this characteristic, then that's a flag and I'll give you the value back. Or if you do some series of um, challenges that I you know, kind of put in the read flag, like read me a thousand times, um, mm -hmm. I'll give you a flag and, and give that back. And so each flag was kind of created to step people through um, very basic um, interactions and then get more and more advanced as you go on. So it starts off with like simple reads and writes and then kind of gets into towards the end, like doing indications and notifications and things like that. Very cool. That's really awesome. Um, so we have two questions from uh, Nemesis in the chat. Mm -hmm. um, so to get started learning about BLE, is it recommended to just get the board and start the CTF? Do you think yeah. if you were somebody who is completely new to BLE and Bluetooth in general, would do you think that this would be a good starting point for somebody? Yeah, I think it's probably one of the best starting points. Um, I'm not saying it just because it's my own project, right? If you could find a project <laughs> similar to it, I mean, go for it. Um, I think prior to this, like the real only method to do it was to go out to the store and buy a bunch of, you know, just cheap Bluetooth low energy devices and start poking around in, with them. Um, mm -hmm. But now with this, it's, you know, you... Um, you can just kind of interact with it and learn a lot of the, the basics as you go. Um, it doesn't require sniffing connections. Once you start to get into like real Bluetooth hackery, um, it does get more complicated. Um, one of the hardest parts about doing, you know, practical Bluetooth low energy exploitation is probably um, figuring out the values that you send to a GAT server, right? Uh, they can be anything. Um, like fuzzing these values is not very simplistic, right? Cause it can be like some, any hex number from, you know, like, you know, zero to infinity, um, yeah. it has the right format, it has to be the right length. Um, but all the stuff in GAT servers for most devices that you look at is just custom coded, which is why a lot of it's extremely vulnerable. But uh, it's also one of the reasons why there's not just kind of widespread exploitation across the board as well, too. Mm -hmm. so. so for the people who are listening who are newer to Bluetooth, um, do you want to explain what GAT is and what it means for just the BLE stack in general, like how that is a part of it or where, where it comes into play? Yeah, I mean, I can give you my dirty explanation. Um, that's kind that's of really cool. I think there's a lot of people in here who are who are looking to learn about BLE. So I feel like if we're talking about anything specific to it that might, people might not have been exposed to. It might be good to kind of do a little quick and dirty primer. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I kind of uh, hinted at it earlier. Um, I think when I just explained it to people quickly in order to give them a rough, um, you know, understanding of it. Um, Bluetooth GAT servers are, are you know, like they're a, a one, one client can speak to a GAT server at a time, which is kind of obscure. Um, but when you think about it, when I compare it to HTTP, where you can have many clients connecting to a server. Um, but putting that aside, if you just think of a GAT server as an HTTP server, um, basically, <laughs> I'm trying to do this like from my hip and remember exactly how I do it in my slides. Um, <laughs> basically, a GAT server hosts uh, a lot of different functionality, and these are called characteristics. 
for each characteristic in a GAT server, you can do um, reads and writes to it, notification, you know, subscribe to notifications, subscribe to indications and things like that. And so think of a characteristic as a, you know, like a restful URL that you would hit in an HTTP server. Uh, instead of doing, you know, like in an HTTP server, you do gets and posts in, in Bluetooth on a GAT server, um, you do reads, writes, um, notifications, and indications. Um, and so there can be any number of characteristics on a device. Um, these are typically like broken out into profiles as well, too, which maybe you can consider those kind of like subdomains or some type of organization of characteristics. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's an HTTP server with a bunch of URLs and you hit it with some information and shit works. <laughs> That's my dirty explanation of it. Hell yeah. So now you interact with these services through what? You can use apps to do it. You can use Scapy, right? Is there, I guess, what sort of, how would you describe interact the interaction process? Like when you send information to a gas server? Yeah, for sure. Um, which is funny. It's one of the reasons to why I created this, um, uh, the second iteration of it is I think that the tools for doing interactions with GAT and, and Bluetooth Low Energy overall are, are lacking um, from a hacker perspective. I think a lot of them are great tools in order to um, do normal interactions. So you have like um, a lot of the tools that you get with the Blue Z stack and Core Linux. And so this is like HCI util, uh, which allows you to kind of scan all the Bluetooth uh, low energy devices around you or do a lot of other functionality. Um, so a lot of the tools I just use in this and I, you know, you can do the whole CTF with are just core stock Linux built in. So, um, GAT tool, um, which is basically your curl of, <laughs> of Bluetooth, uh, low energy. Um, you have HCI tool, um, which allows you to do a lot of scanning HCI config, which is kind of like IF config, but for Bluetooth, um, there's a couple of custom tools created by, um, some well-known people in the industry, um, uh, Blair is one of them, which is a really cool client-side tool, um, which is a project created by Simone. I think his Twitter handle is at EvilSocket. Um, but it's a really cool Bluetooth tool to do reads and writes and enumerations of full gap stacks um, to visualize it really nice. Um, the project is now deprecated. He, he's, he kind of um, stopped contributing to the Python version of the project, and he's putting it into... He's merging all of that code into go for, uh, what is the name of the new project? BetterCap, um, which is pretty cool, but it's still lacking a lot of the functionality. Um, but yeah, cool stuff. Those are kind of like the, the de facto tools that will cost you nothing and you can just use with the Bluetooth module in your laptop. That's awesome. Yeah, no, it's amazing because like with you, if you have a Linux-based laptop and you have any modern laptop, it's likely going to have some sort of Bluetooth controller that you can already use built in, which is pretty dope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a lot you can do. Um, but I think, um, you know, I uh, I don't know, like uh, I didn't mention it, um, but I had been working on a version two of BLECTF, which I was, um, it was still open source. It was just like um, a different branch within the repository. Um, but it was meant to be a new version to fix a lot of the fallacies of the first one. Um, but with that, I started to realize when I wrote version two, um, as a lot of the flags became more complex and more security oriented, um, that there just are not a lot of tools in the industry in order to solve a lot of these flags I'm creating. Um, so hopefully, um, version two will be more of a call to action for, you know, the community to create better tools. 
Um, and I hope for other people to do it. I mean, if I end up getting spare time, maybe I'll do that in the future, but um, I like to kind of create stuff to help other people create better things. That's awesome. Um, Femto Duino in the chat asks if you have poked and prodded at Bluetooth mesh networking. No, not really. I just kind of stick with the basics. I've done like a lot of Bluetooth classic stuff in the past. And then um, kind of my resurgence into Bluetooth has all been uh, just low energy, um, no mesh networking or anything like that. Uh, and then also someone asked earlier if you've ever uh, played around with like any like bug bounty like programs or whatnot that have uh, or like centered around physical devices with, you know, Bluetooth. No, I haven't. I've not really been like, I, you, we use a lot of bug bounties here at Atlassian and that's kind of like my familiarity with them. Um, but uh, I've never like found any for hardware. If anyone wants to throw them in the chat, I'd love to take a look. I mostly just hack on Bluetooth stuff in order to talk about at you know, like our local hacker meetups here. Like, Hey dudes, check out these sweet pair of glasses. They have a Bluetooth cat server on it. I figured out how to, you know, do this and that. Um, or for a while there, I was having a lot of fun with electric skateboards uh, a lot of them just have like open <laughs> gets <laughs> as well too. Um, so I did a couple prezos on just, you know, changing all the modes on Bluetooth skateboards while they're active and uh, finding a lot of hidden features in them as well. That's awesome. Yeah. There's so one of the, my favorite things to do is uh, actually Hermit is here with me right now. We like to go to the Walmart clearance section and find the stupidest Bluetooth devices that there are. Um, it was a like, fidget spinner. Yeah, the fidget spinners that are uh, <laughs> that have Bluetooth speakers in them and all sorts of weird stuff, or the the selfie uh, the selfie camera button is actually just a it's a hid device that just you can re you can play around with too. Yeah. Um, what, is, what are some of the weirder Bluetooth enabled devices that you found? Oh God, um, I got I was going to a masquerade party like a year ago maybe and. Um, I wanted, I didn't want to wear a masquerade mask. I thought that was kind of lame. Uh, so I bought these, um, glasses, um, that are just like full face glasses that will do kind of like led lettering or displays across the screen. Um, and so that was one of the cooler ones because you can actually, you know, show people what you're doing. And a lot of, um, I always kick myself because I never have my gear on me when I need it. Um, I was on a trip to Mexico uh, maybe six months ago, and there was a lot of break dancers that were wearing this exact same make and model of glasses that I had like learned how to just kind of tap into the GAT stack and write my own lettering to it. Um, mm -hmm. But I just always wish that I had my stuff with me at the time and I could just be like, oh, you know, like put some, you know, like vulgar pictures on their glasses as they're break dancing, although that would probably make their show cooler. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, there's definitely some really wacky stuff and it just like, cause it's easier to, and easier to put modules into things. People just like, Oh, Bluetooth enabled it. Same with, same with Wi-Fi enabled stuff. But I feel like Bluetooth enabled stuff is just funnier because it just usually comes with some really horrible app to pair with your phone too. And it just makes the whole process amazing. Oh yeah. Well, especially now with the, like in like dark sauces, they're creating like Bluetooth stethoscopes and all this kind yeah. of stuff. It's like random shit. Oh. Like you're just like, all right. Oh, boy. But a lot of it's scary too, right? Um, I don't really do mass scanning of Bluetooth devices and things like that um, because there are medical devices out there that are Bluetooth enabled. And, um, you know, with messing with a lot of GAT servers, like a lot of just the fuzzing that you'll do to them or just, you know, like mass enumeration of them will totally crash them. Uh, and so you don't really want to fuck anything up that's important. Um, yep. 
was pretty careful with it, but um, I don't know, obviously there's just a lot of unknown out there still. Yeah, absolutely. Also, what about Femto? Femto, Femto Duino has joined the chat. Hello. Hey. Hello. Femto. Wow. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Okay, cool. <laughs> no, Femto Duino makes some really cool hardware too, stuff too, so I, I figured he'd be good to, to come in and chat with us as well. So Yeah. Glad to be here. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, so, uh, Jillis asks uh, if you've created an auto poner gadget yet. <laughs> ah, well, for those kind of shenanigans, I, I tend to, to defer to more experienced hackers. Uh, there's a hacker by the name of Space Hun. Uh, I, I guess that's German for space chicken, who does all kinds of little shenanigans with Bluetooth stuff. And he's gotten a couple of my boards before. I got to send him some new ones. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Um, what about you, uh, Ryan? Um, you know, like it's really easy to do, um, for a lot of the fuzzing techniques or just general stuff. Um, you can obviously just kind of feed it all the Mac addresses for all the things around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really easy to do. Um, I don't really do it, you know, when I'm outside of like the walls of my home or just an area that I know. Um, but yeah, yeah. Dead simple. Kind of scary. <laughs> It really is. Um, so what are some of the, I guess, more obscure things that you might be hacking on with Bluetooth um, that you've been playing with lately? Uh, I'd actually say a lot of the challenges in my new CGM. <laughs> um, so like, um, I think one of the cool things that I did, um, so obviously like BLACTF version one that I released last year, I loved it, but it was very monolithic in nature and I couldn't do advanced stuff like put authentication on flags or, um, do some of the weird challenges that I could, because that would mean that you would have to kind of go through all those loops for every single flag you wanted. Um, with version two, I made it, um, I did a lot of cool hackery in order to make it emulate an infinite amount of Bluetooth GAT servers. Uh, Mm -hmm. so any chip at a time can actually only host one Bluetooth GAT server. Uh, and so, um, what I did is I made it, um, basically I flashed it with a whole bunch of Bluetooth GAT code, um, for, you know, hundreds of different servers. It's only got 10 built into it right now, but I've, you know, threw in like a hundred different template ones to see how many it could actually hold. Um, but, um, basically what it does is, um, based on some persistence that I stored to the disc, like, um, so let's say that, um, the very beginning of it is a scoreboard when you fire it up and you tell the scoreboard, Hey, what flag do I want to go to? And so you would say, I want to go to flag one and that will write a persistence flag to disc on ESP 32 of one. Uh, and then it actually reset it and it'd tell it that, Hey, we're going to boot up the gap server for flag one now, uh, which then will spin up a whole completely different gap server on it. It all happens instantly. So it just seems like you're, you know, flipping through gap servers. Um, but in there I've done some insanely zany shit that I've just never seen on any type of Bluetooth device before. Um, which I wouldn't doubt if someone ends up using in production systems in the future. A lot of it's just um, (laughs) (laughs) things that completely break a lot of the tools that are out there right now, um, Mm -hmm. renders them useless. Um, you know, so like for, you know, full enumeration of all characteristics and stuff like that, it just, I won't spoil anything, but you can't do it. Um, and so it just does really nasty shit like that. Um, a lot of different authentication methods that you don't see on other devices as well too. 
Um, programming Bluetooth authentication and security is kind of an undocumented thing. Uh, if you start reading a lot of the SDK documentation, it's not a lot of great examples, not a lot of um, good docs on how to say, hey, how, this is how you enable man-in-the-middle protection, this is how you enable you know, required authentication and stuff like that. So uh, I'd say some of the coolest <laughs> zany shit I've seen has all been on uh, version 2 of the CTF. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's also really unfortunate to hear that 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 all the sort of security mechanisms that you would want on Bluetooth devices is very difficult to actually come across and implement. Um, yeah. Is that something that you see consistently throughout Bluetooth stuff? Like, yeah, I think that's the reason why you see so many devices out there that are just completely, you know, unauthenticated GAT servers that you can connect to and do reads and writes to. Uh, they don't require pairing. Um, they don't require authentication or man-in-the-middle protection, which they, is basically just encryption and Bluetooth. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of sucks. Um, but it, I guess it's good for me um, because I'm playing around with this stuff <laughs> um, and everything's just kind of like doors wide open. So is there any sort of advice I guess you'd give to people that are maybe in charge of designing systems for Bluetooth? But um, you know they might get tasked with you know writing some something in their firmware to enable Bluetooth that would be I guess if you were designing something using Bluetooth that would be useful to know that you may have only realized after much uh, toil. Yeah, I think um, you know a lot of it, a lot of like the development for these things is probably outsourced or things of that nature. But um, I think looking for chips that have, you know, like uh, IDEs or documentation for the, not IDEs, but SDKs that have documentation or examples for, um, good examples for security is probably one of the best things to look for. Um, I know the Expressive one, which is the ESP32 SDK, like it has really poor documentation for security, which made it really hard in order to figure out a lot of the flags and uh, how to configure it and stuff like that for, for these security modes. Um, mm -hmm. But look around, right? And, you know, TI might have better than Nordic that might have better than, you know, like Expressive and things of that nature. And that's a really good uh, good call. It's just to kind of go with like manufacturers that are <laughs> that are making and maintaining, you know, documentation and, you know, updates for their actual SDKs. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, you see a lot of stuff. Like, I mean, there's, when I used to go around and buy like random Bluetooth modules to play with off of a, uh, of eBay, there'd just be stuff that just had no branding. It just said like Bluetooth, like on it, like just no information on the chips. Just, mm -hmm. Everything's just like a mess. So yeah, definitely like a minefield at sometimes to, uh, to get through, to figure out like what something actually is without like decapping the chip and like looking for clues in the die. Like, yeah. And I think a lot of it too, is just things that as tools get better for these things, then, you know, um, you know, actual consumers will kind of request better security as well too. Um, mm -hmm. So like an example of that is um, when you're playing around, um, you know, one of the hardships I have in version two of my CTF, I can't even do all of the challenges uh, is, you know, I have um, pairing challenges and stuff like that. You have to pair with the right codes. And so there's not a lot of tools out there um, that are made to just kind of iterate through all of the codes for pairing or something like that. That's made easy. Um, I think I was using like, um, Bluetooth CTL or something like that, which is a real pain in the ass to use um, mm -hmm. using it for shenanigans. 
Uh, if you're using it for you know just typical Bluetooth connections that require pairing and stuff like that, uh, then it works just fine. Um, but uh, I think a lot of it kind of derives from the fact too that um, a lot of Bluetooth setups from a client side, um, a lot of the pairing and authentication is happening at um, the actual operating system level, um, yeah. rather than you know like within the client code that you can write. Um, and so kind of creating a better stack for that um, just to do better security research would be really helpful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because a lot of stuff just becomes, you know, a part of whatever sort of kernel driver is, you know, getting loaded and it's just kind of there. It's You can read the source code, but it's just C. Like, it's not really anything that you can, like, play with. There's no, like, real API as much as somebody would like. So, yeah, it's definitely that tools are very valuable. Yeah, and you just run into like completely random stuff a lot of times too. So like I mentioned, you know, when you're enumerating a lot of Bluetooth devices, like they'll just crash and hang and, you know, do all kinds of yeah. stuff. And that's totally normal. You see it in like, you know, Bluetooth connections for TV sets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you also see like just weird random bugs. I remember I was just like... Um, uh, setting up devices that would mimic other devices. Um, I think I was messing around with like a Pokemon Go, like Bluetooth clicker. And so I was <laughs> emulating that. Uh, and the real one was connected to my iPhone. And after my iPhone connected to the emulated one, I could never repair back to the old one. Uh, <laughs> really weird DDoS attack for shit like that. Um, <laughs> it's out there. And, you know, like it's really hard to document uh, because it's just buggy as fuck. Anyway. <laughs> Accidentally um, break things. <laughs> <laughs> um, Femto in the chat, who's also in our voice chat, asks if there are any links to the Fform Engine CTF tools. He'd like to try them out on um, his hardware that he makes. Uh, um, so I guess, is there any like, short list of tools for people to try out um, when they're trying to approach your challenge? Yeah, for sure. Um, I've made it so you can do it all with um, just the basics, like um, Gap Tool and um, you know HCI Util. Um, and I recommend those more than things like Bleh. Like while Bleh makes it really easy to get a full visualization of stuff, um, you know, it, it doesn't do everything. It doesn't have the capability to do um, persistent connections or notifications or indications and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. With a lot of it, you're dealing with bits and bytes or hex when you're doing the values that you're pushing to and from. Um, but it's a really good thing to just kind of understand until there's something out there that's better. All right. Yeah, that's a good, good thing to suggest. Yeah. Um, so if you are going to do your CTF, so I've seen you, you have pre-flashed boards as well as people can download it onto their own ESP32. Yeah, I recommend people do it themselves. Um, go buy a ESP32 um, cheap and flash it yourself. It's a good learning process. Um, I sell overpriced ones for people that um, just simply don't want to do it. Um, and I hate shipping them and stuff like that. So I was like, I'll just sell them for 20 bucks. And if people really, really want them, then they can have them because I hate having to go to a mailbox and ship them out all the time. Um, yeah. But... Um, I mean, it's great. I mean, I think 20 bucks isn't too much. I know from my perspective too, if I found someone out there that had something similar, I'd probably pay that. Um, I'm not like price gouging anyone, but um, it's worth kind of like the pain of my time in order to... <laughs> Absolutely. ...out of these and put them in a box and ship them. 
No, that's absolutely true. Because it's like it's it gets tough, especially if you're doing it on your own and it's just for fun. And you know, you're sitting there flashing firmware. Like it's it's just like it's not like the the easiest thing in the world to just sit down yeah. and do. It's it, it can get like I think the last time I had fun flashing a whole bunch of them was for my Circle City Con workshop because uh, I had no idea how many people were in the class, and so I flashed fifty of them in my hotel room the night before. Um, but then I wasn't sure how many people would be beginners versus advanced. And so I didn't know whether to flash like 50 version ones or like 20 version twos. Um, oh. yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, like I just kind of like get into these weird rhythms where I'm just like plug, flash, plug, flash, plug, flash. Um, <laughs> but you know, like, um, I, I'm doing one, I think I'm doing a workshop for DEF CON this year on the Thursday. Um, I think it has 80 seats in it. So I'll have a lot of flashing to do for that. Um, and then um, it should go a lot smoother than my Circle City Con one too, I think, because um, not that that one didn't go smooth. It's just I learned a lot of hardships um, that uh, nuances that I, I should have thought of beforehand. Yeah, absolutely. So what goes into your workshop that you're doing at DEF CON? Um, not much, right? Um, all the hard work's done with the CTF. Um, basically, I give people just a short primer in order to get them uh, familiar with Bluetooth and kind of how to get through the first flag. Uh, after that, like the flag just kind of teach you themselves. Uh, so uh, for Circle City Con, I think that was a nine-hour workshop, which <laughs> which was grueling to go through that long. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I gave maybe like a two hour prezzo on some Bluetooth basics and here's the tools that you'll need and here's how to use them. Uh, and then you basically just give them a CTF and you say, go. Um, we spent a lot of time, people just came in with like stuck flashed Cali laptops, uh, which seemed to be fairly problematic. Um, so we, we worked through how to get those up and working right. A lot of them didn't work with the Bluetooth modules in their laptops. So we were like you know, furiously running around looking for Bluetooth USB dongles that everyone could use that were compliant with the, the operating system they had. So yeah. for this one, I just ordered like, you know, like 40 or 50 uh, super cheap USB dongles that I know work. Uh, and then, yeah, it should go a lot smoother. That's really cool. <laughs> I'm glad that there's just people out there that you that are able to explain and, and get people excited about stuff that is you know normally I mean, overlooked. I mean, USB is, I mean, USB, PLE and Bluetooth stuff is so ubiquitous now. Like everything is, has Bluetooth, but it's, it's, I feel like not as well understood as a lot of things that are in a similar sort of level of, uh, of usage around the world. So I definitely think it's something for a lot of people to, to look into more. Cause like a lot of people kind of like get deterred from like radio related stuff yeah. in general because it's just, it's, Sometimes it seems complicated. The equipment is definitely a bit more on the pricey side. Um, but I definitely think the, the Bluetooth and BLE is what can kind of really bring the, the barrier to entry down a lot more and get people into doing a lot of really crazy stuff with uh, radio. Yeah, I, th I think you're right there. And, and a lot of it really does come down to the tooling as well, too. I think um, even with software-defined radio, uh, and I talked to a lot of my friends that are really into it, um, they there's just nothing out there that's just kind of like super simple for people to, you know, kind of get a wide breadth of functionality from simple commands. And I think that's um, something you can get with BLE just because of the, the built-in Linux tools with the blue Z stack, which are um, super awesome. For sure. 
also big shots to Mike Osman for all his, all the work he's put in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, his, him and Dominic spilled their initial work in kind of creating, uh, the Uber tooth was huge for the community. Um, you know, that kind of gave everyone a cheap barrier of entry to do, um, passive Bluetooth sniffing. Um, so super good friends and super good guys. For sure. <laughs> um, I just posted in the chat. Anyone have any last questions before you wrap up for the night? Um, Jillis asks, what can we expect in BLECTF 3.0? There won't be one because the V2 I named Infinity uh, because it can grow forever. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> nice. I didn't dwell on it too much, but uh, it's very modular in nature. Uh, the whole kind of make process for it actually does a lot of code generation for it. Uh, and so um, it supports uh, user-generated flags so people can write their own GAT services and submit them as flags. Uh, <laughs> and you can just keep plugging them in. Um, I have a project I'm working on um, maybe over the next six months to um, mirror a lot of Bluetooth devices and then put them in the format that they could actually just be CTF flags in um, Bluetooth CTF uh, Infinity. Um, but yeah, it's just super modular in nature. Um, a lot of a lot of cool stuff there. I had to do a lot of hackery because it's all you know C code, um, and so you can't do a lot of dynamic stuff with that. Um, but I just did it through code generation. Sweet. Oh, Someone. somebody just asked in the chat: uh, potential for BLE address to track people around a city. <laughs> it's there. I mean, there's the concept of randomized Bluetooth addresses, which is a thing. Um, but you can still track it through the signatures of the characteristics on the devices, um, the values of the characteristics on devices. Uh, a lot of things that say they are randomized MAC addresses really aren't. They stay static for a very long time or they're just not random at all. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of potential. I actually did a talk at DEF CON uh, on Bluetooth classic tracking of MAC addresses. Um, this is, I don't know, maybe like six, six or seven years ago. Um, but at the time, there was a like I lucked out because there was a flaw or a bug in iOS devices um, where typically you had to go to settings in order to make your Bluetooth module discoverable. Um, but in phones at the time, it was just stuck on. Uh, and so I was going around like the F1 track out here in Austin, and it was just like everyone's iPhones, and you just track them everywhere. Uh, yep. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Yeah. There's, I forget what product it was. There was a product that I've seen before um, for Raspberry Pi that was um, like almost like a Marauder's map with like BLE for triangulation and put it and pasting it onto like some map. Um, I don't remember what it was called. Yeah, there's been a couple of them. I know initially there was, um, it wasn't one. Like I, I, I started, I like I got a domain for one. I call it like the Bluetooth database. But someone was actually working on that actively at the same time. Uh, and they were just doing active scans of all the Bluetooth stuff like that were discoverable yeah. and putting them into these mass databases. Um, yeah. I think there was one called Snoopy as well or something like that, where some dude was like flying around with like drones and model airplanes and just sniffing everyone's uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth addresses and putting those into a database as well. Gotta love, gotta love our cyberpunk dystopia here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, have you ever played around with, um, like, uh, what's it called? Like BLE beacons, like, uh, like Eddie stone stuff or any of the other sort of weird things that can basically do push notifications to you on your phone. 
So I've played with them here and there. Um, I've mostly been playing with like a lot of advertisement stuff or uh, I forget what like iOS calls theirs. Like I think it's just Beacon or something like that. Um, there's a couple samples for it in the Expressive uh, SDK. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think Nordic has them in their SDK as well. Um, but yeah, they're really simple. There's not much to them. Um, they're just basically sending out like, you know, custom formatted advertisement packets that phones are listening for. That's cool. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that just I've I've always seen that I was on a play with it. I ended up getting lost in everything else too. <laughs> this is this has inspired me now that I'm out traveling to just uh start uh war war walking with my phone. Yeah, and if you learn how to flash the CTF, I mean like a lot of the samples in the expressive uh, SDK, I mean, they're just as simple to build and hack on and flash your ESP32 as the CTF is. Um, and so I think uh, I really want people to flash their own and, and kind of learn that process because I think that's just going to educate more people in order to get into Bluetooth and these chipsets and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got like about five more minutes left. Does anybody have anything else before we wrap up for the night? Not sure if anything. Um, but a lot of awesome discussion in the chat. A lot of good hardware chats here. Um, I'm stoked a lot of people are as excited about this kind of stuff because um, it's sometimes just seems like a like a disparate thing. It's hard to meet up with people that that are interested in this kind of thing too. Um, and also, Femto asks if uh, GitHub.com forward slash hacknar forward slash ble underscore ctf is the repo. That's the one for version one. Uh, that's the one I recommend everyone starts with. And then there's one that is just an extra underbar, you know, infinity. And that's the newest one. Uh, actually just uh, hard forked that from a branch today uh, and made that its own separate repository. And so I'll be working on that uh, pretty hard before DEF CON. Hell yeah. For sure. Is there any like place where like Bluetooth hackers maybe congregate or some like good places for someone to to ask around questions via Twitter, Discord, etc.? I don't think so. I've never found any. I just kind of like work in a silo when I do this shit. Um, you know, if you find one, ping me. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely the the wireless village Discord is pretty cool. Um, but I'm not sure how many people there. Um, have more to focus on Bluetooth. I know it's more ham and other SDR related things, but yeah, yeah. Um, So uh, someone asked, besides physically turning off your phone, BLE is always discoverable? Uh, I don't know. I think it just depends on the operating system. Like if you do like a, you know, like if you put your Bluetooth device interface down, like it's not going to be there. Um, And so it depends on what your phones do. Um, with Bluetooth Classic, even if it wasn't discoverable, if you knew the MAC address, you could still connect to it. Um, and so with Bluetooth Low Energy, it's different too. Like it would have to be hosting like a GAT server in order for you to be able to connect to it. But uh, you might be able to enumerate some of the information from the name as well too. Interesting. It's pretty sweet. For sure. Um, oh yeah. So um, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for Ryan for coming on and hanging out with us. Um, this has been an awesome talk. Um, feeling pretty inspired to play with some stuff and I'm definitely going to try um, BLS ETF because I have a ESP32 line around I haven't done anything with yet. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I don't think I've ever talked that much about Bluetooth in one sit down so pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> sure. 
good having you. Also, thanks to everyone who donated and subscribed. Yeah, thanks to everybody. Shouts to uh, Uncle Danfy, aka Bane, aka uh, Mr. What's called? I had a name for him, but I Worldwide. (laughs) Mr. Worldwide. Mr. Worldwide. (laughs) I forgot what his cholo name, but I gave him was. Uh, and Jillis and uh, Nemesis for all donating here and uh, Lord Parody and Femto for subscribing. Um, so yeah, we'll be back next week. Um, everybody with a uh, uh, Serper um, to talk about community building amongst other things. Um, yes. should be really talk Cause he's, he does a lot of really cool stuff. So we will be back okay. here. Next yeah. Amazing dude. And it'll be awesome. So yeah, thanks Ryan so much for coming out. Um, we'll definitely try to, tweet out if you have any if you have any links or anything you want to tweet out that we can retweet for anybody um definitely go for it and is there any what's the best way to, to get in contact with you twitter just add hacknar okay cool so yeah um <laughs> thanks everybody for joining and we will see y'all later adios bye